Father, we do come before you and praise you for your son Jesus, your only begotten son whom you sent for us. You sent him that he would take on human flesh and live the perfect life and be the perfect sacrifice in our place. Thank you for his sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for your son. Father, I thank you for your word also, that you speak to us through your word by your spirit, and you build us up and grow us in respect to salvation. And I pray for those of us who know you today, that that's what would be done, that we would grow in respect to salvation. And Father, for those who do not know you, I pray today would be the day of salvation, that you would pierce through the hardened heart, and that there would be a response of faith in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, and we commit it to you now in your son's precious name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of the term witness? You know, probably the first thing that comes to mind is a witness in a courtroom, whatever that might be, uh, giving testimony to some events, whatever might be on trial, whatever it might be about. What do you think of when you think of the term witness in the context of the church? For most of us, I think right away evangelism comes to mind. Indeed, we share our testimony or the gospel. When we do that, we are witnessing, we say that, that term. It is a verbal testimony of what Christ has done in the context of the gospel. That, that's certainly witnessing. But unfortunately, in churches these days and with many believers, that's as far as it goes. There are programs and ways to get people to get out and share the gospel and witness systems of winning arguments and with non-believers concerning creation or sin or whatever it might be. There's pressure within churches to share the gospel. But is this what encompasses the whole idea of witnessing, testifying, or our testimony? Today, I believe we're going to see that one major element of our testimony is often left out in the current culture these days, this current program-oriented culture. And I believe one element is left out. That one element is our behavior that Christ brings through us, which is a testimony to the world and a platform for the gospel to go out. Today we're going to see how we can maintain a truly redemptive witness in the midst of a hostile world. You should turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12. And again, we've been studying the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we are looking at a book that was written to believers in Asia Minor by Peter. It was written sometime uh, early 64 AD, just before Nero's great persecution of believers. Uh, Peter has already reminded these believers that they've been chosen for a great salvation, that they're, they're resident aliens and that by God's great mercy they have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A tremendous salvation that has a, a hope that is alive and eternal, and a future inheritance reserved for heaven, this salvation of which we are protected by God for this wonderful salvation to be ready, ready to be revealed in the last time. Yet in the midst of our great salvation, Peter reminds believers of the temporal realities of trials and difficulties, if perhaps, that God might allow to come upon us. 
that within these trials, we need to be rejoicing knowing that God is purging sin out of our lives and he is refining us like a, a refiner refines gold, that we would be reflecting the image and nature of Christ. He is proving and demonstrating our testimony, our faith to be, genu- to, to be genuine. It's at this point we saw the, the commands that Peter gives for those of us who are true believers that we should fix our hope on the grace to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes. That we are to be holy because he is holy. That we are to live in the context of godly fear because of what God did, sending his son, the price that was paid. That we are to love the body of Christ because we were born again unto a sincere love of the brethren. And then beginning in chapter 2, that we are to be yearning for the, the pure milk of the word, that by it we would grow in respect to salvation. And from this point in chapter 2, we came to a portion that was just encouragement for those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord, for those who have truly been saved. That encouragement, I think you'll remember that God reveals that he is building us up as a spiritual house, a a holy priesthood, uh, that we would uh, offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable. The tremendous reality of what God is doing through his word as we come to Jesus and coming to him as we come to him and allow his word to build us up, we become more like Jesus Christ. He is building up his church. And then you'll remember we saw that the precious value of the stone which the builders rejected, that precious value, Jesus Christ, is for us. But yet for those who reject him, for those who disbelieve, he will be the stone in which they eternally stumble over into this doom they were appointed And then last week we saw Peter continues his encouragement, revealing our identity in Christ. That we believers in Jesus are a distinct kind, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. We are his people and he is our God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that God has done this, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's called us out of sin and darkness into a relationship with him, into his marvelous light. And we are those who were once not a people, but we are now the people of God. We are those who once had not received his mercy, but now we have received mercy. We are God's people, and he is building us up for something wonderful. And it's at this point, the book really shifts at this point, after sharing the reality of our salvation in Christ and the temporal realities of trials and then what God is doing in our lives to some practical applications for true believers in the context of being sojourners on this earth. And we come to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a tremendous passage. And as we'll see in a moment, there were non-believers slandering and maligning these true believers. They were persecuting them. And indeed, this is what happens when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Non-believers will treat us badly so in the midst of that in the midst of a hostile world how do we who know jesus christ maintain a truly redemptive witness 
I think first of all, we're going to see, well, we're going to see two things. But first of all, we're going to see that we must stay away from fleshly desires. We need to stay away from fleshly desires. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. I could say amen right now, and we'd all go home and go, wow, okay, I need to take that to heart. It's a tremendous passage. It's a tremendous passage. And he begins with the term beloved. He is speaking to those who are loved by him and ultimately by God through him. And there are two places in First Peter in which he does share this term beloved right here. And then before he introduces that they shouldn't be surprised in chapter 4, verse 12, of the fiery ordeal which comes upon them for their testing as though some strange thing were happening. Peter is exhorting these believers, as we will see, in the context of God's love. God loves us. He is a gracious God who loves us dearly. He loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. This tremendous love that we should be called children of God. And it's in the context of God's tremendous love for us, we have these exhortations by a loving God through Peter, inspired by the Spirit. Now, what is he urging us to do very simple we are to continually stay away from fleshly lusts beloved i urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul now before we get to this portion that speaks of our identity as aliens and strangers and we will look at that in a moment i want to talk about this passage here a little bit talk about the actual command here It's actually an exhortation. It's an urging. You could almost translate it, Beloved, I beg you, I beg you to do this. God who loves us is begging us as believers to do something. He's continually, habitually begging us to continually, habitually do something. That's what the the original language reveals. Beloved, I urge you or I beg you as aliens and strangers to do what? To abstain from fleshly lusts the term abstain is pretty an interesting term because it doesn't just simply mean not to do and i think as i've looked at this in the past i've always thought of it that way don't do it abstain don't do it that seems to be really what the word abstain in our english language means but this word translated abstain actually speaks of holding back or staying away or being distant being distant This word is combined with another word in Luke chapter 15. Turn there to Luke chapter 15. This is the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. Luke 15, verse 20. This is the prodigal son coming back to his father. And he got up and came to his father, but while he was still... A long way off. Those are two words combined with our word here. One word combined with our word. It speaks of while he was very far, where he was very far away. He was distant. Distant. So then we have in our passage, we are being exhorted and begged by a loving God through Peter to stay away, to be distant, to be far away from something. Well, what is that that we are to be far away from? fleshly lusts and i think we're going to find out it is so important that we understand it this way because we can 
get pretty close to entertaining fleshly lusts at times. And we should not just abstain. And I think we find out that if we're close, we will end up yielding to those things. We need to stay far away from fleshly lusts. Now, certainly when we don't do it, we abstain. That's obviously true. But this carries the idea, and I want to pound this home, of staying far away. Staying far away. Well, what are fleshly lusts? Well, the term epithumia speaks of a strong impulse or desire. That's what's translated desires or lusts here. Speaks of a strong impulse or desire. We understand that. It can be for good or it can be for bad. And when it's bad, the translators usually translate it lusts rather than desires. God's will or his will is his desire. That's good. That's good. But as we'll see here, fleshly lusts, they are not good. And so often we see now here, this, actually this passage is modified, this word is modified by the term fleshly. These, these, these lusts are in the context of our flesh. And, and so often in Scripture we have this, this duality, this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. That which is of God and that which is of man apart from God. That which is of unredeemed man, which is generated within our sinful flesh. Fleshly lusts. Now, what are fleshly lusts? Let me share some passages that shed light on fleshly lusts for us. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to go through a lot of passages here, so we'll just skip from one to another. 1 John 2. Now, John says we're not to love the things of the world, and he gives the things that are in the world, and he kind of gives three, he gives three specific things, and they're within that, those three specific things, there's kind of a lot of crossover. 1 John 2.15 to believers, do not love the world, nor the things in the, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Hey, he's not saved. He says here, for all that is in the world, notice the first one, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. These desires are what characterize the world, those who are apart from Jesus Christ. They are the world's lusts. They are the world's desires. What the world desires apart from Christ. And if you look in Scripture and you know yourself before you got saved, our desires were simply around our own desires, right? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul will give a contrast between the way we used to walk in our desires before Jesus Christ saved us, before God saved us through Christ, by grace, through faith. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. Notice he says, according to the course of this world. The way the world apart from Christ functions According to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, by the way, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, now Paul includes himself as a Jew, we too formerly lived, we also lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
the course of this world is to indulge in your own desires. In your own desires. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace or by grace you have been saved. Our sinful desires are contrary to God's desires, God's will. It is driven from our flesh apart from the Lord. And they manifest themselves in all kinds of sinful and ugly behaviors. The desires manifest themselves in sinful and ugly behaviors, whether internal or external. Some people can look very nice on the outside, but on the inside be very, very dark. When Paul addresses the sin in the Corinthian church, he speaks of them still being fleshly. And he gives some examples of what that behavior looks like when they're being fleshly. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2. And Paul is reproving these believers because we can be fleshly or we wouldn't even need to have this command in our passage to abstain from or stay away from fleshly lusts. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able For you are still fleshly. You're still fleshly. You're following your own desires. Notice what he says. For since there is, here's some manifestations of that. Since there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Are you walking like those who don't know Christ? He says, for one says, I am a Paul, and one says, I'm Apollos. Are you not mere men? He's saying, hey, you're elevating men. That's the way the world functions. Believers elevate God. They give him the glory, not man. Even in the context of ministry, they were elevating man. That's totally sinful. That's fleshly. Fleshly. And then there was jealousy and strife over the men they were elevating. How sinful is that? We can understand, can't we? Indeed, the source of all of our conflicts has to do with our desires. Turn to James chapter 4. If you want to know why you get in a quarrel or a fight or an argument, here is God's answer. Here is God's answer. James chapter 4. Coming on the heels of the two choices of wisdom which we can function by, whether it's wisdom from above or wisdom from below, wisdom from above with wonderful fruit, Versus that wisdom from below with its wicked fruit that goes along with it. James chapter 4. And it's in the context of humility, by the way. You can't just take in God's word if you're not humbling yourself and relying on him. We'll see that. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of your wars or quarrels and conflicts, wars among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You what? You desire strongly you eagerly desire in a negative way that's lust and you do not have so you commit murder well were these people murdering each other in their church i don't think so he's speaking to jews here and they would understand what the lord jesus said if you hate in your heart you've committed murder in your heart he says you lust and do not have so you commit murder and you are envious and cannot obtain so you are fight and quarrel You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, you're you're committing adultery against God with the world by your desires. 
You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Don't you know that? But he gives a greater grace, he'll say, to the humble, right? Humble yourself. The Apostle Paul, in defending his behavior before the Corinthian church, turn to 2 Corinthians 1.12, he's defending himself before a church that has turned on him and is listening to the bad guys. And he says to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, For our proud confidence is this. He's not being prideful or boasting. He's saying, hey, this is the reality of it. The testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in what? Fleshly wisdom. Wisdom of man. Wisdom generated from mankind apart from God through his spirit by his word. But in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves especially towards you. Our fleshly desires can manifest in leaning on our own understanding, in relying in man's wisdom rather than God's. Our fleshly desires can manifest in those areas too. Notice in Second Peter, he talks about the way that false teachers, deceptive false teachers entice and lead believers astray through fleshly desires. Look at Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. These sneaky false teachers promise freedom. They they share Christ, but they entrap you by your own lusts and desires. It's very sneaky. 2 Peter 2, verse 17. These are springs without water. Hey, you're thirsty to get to the spring. You think, wow, this is great. It looks really great. All of a sudden, there's no water there. They're they're not what they appear to be. Men mist driven by a storm for whom black darkness has been reserved. Doesn't say go try to convert these false teachers, does it? For by speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. By sensuality, those who barely escape from the, from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved." We see our fleshly desires are in opposition to God's desires. Turn to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. And we have some examples here too. 1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And he explains what that means for believers. So as to live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for the desires or lusts of men, but for the will of God. For time already, time, the time already passed is sufficient for you to have what? Carried out the desire of the Gentiles. That's non-believers. It's slang for non-believers. We'll see that in a minute. Having pursued a course of sensuality, these are manifestations, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, parties, abominable, 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 abominable idolatries. <laughs> and in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you. We'll see this later on. This is part of what's happening. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
our fleshly desires are in opposition to God's will and his desire. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. We have the deeds that arise from our desires. If you want to know what it looks like when you desire these things, this is what manifests is. This is the fruit of functioning by your fleshly wisdom and desires. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. The deeds of unregenerate man or a believer relying on their own wisdom, understanding, and desires. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions. That doesn't sound too bad. Well, it is bad. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. There's a lot more of which I forewarn you and just I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice or continually do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, so often we categorize fleshly lust in the area of the sensual or sexual. That's what we do. That is not, that does not describe the whole sphere of fleshly desires. It is so much broader than that. Let me give you an example. I could give you a hundred examples, but let me give you a specific example. Our fleshly desires can be very subtle, very subtle. It could be simply the desire for financial security apart from relying on Jesus Christ, seeking to make sure that everything is good apart from depending on him. We so subtly focus on our financial provision rather than the God who supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying we don't work. I'm not saying we don't provide for our families. But there's a subtle shift where my focus now is like the world, where I'm trusting in these things for my security rather than in Jesus Christ for my security. Simple illustration. I could give you a million. Well, let me share one last aspect of fleshy desires. Back in our passage, First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust. Now he's going to give a description of what they do. And we'll look at that in more detail, but it helps us understand what they are. Which wage war against the soul. Our fleshly desires are in contradiction to our redeemed souls in Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a battle. It's an absolute contradiction. Contradiction. So with this in mind, I think we have a, a beginning of an understanding. We, we don't even need to look at this. We all know what those desires are, right? Unless we're totally deceived and not saved. If you've been saved, you know that pull, that eager pull, that, that strong desire to, to, to fulfill something or, uh, or whatever it might be or to have peace or whatever it might be apart from believing and trusting and walking by faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. So we are to stay far away. Stay far away. We're not to get close. We're not to entertain them. You know, I find that all the problems that I have and all the problems that other people have that come to me have to do with fleshly desires. It's sin. It's sin. There's some area where we have yielded to things that are in contradiction to what God has said in his word, and we are either self-deceived or we are driven and enslaved by those desires. 
And we are to stay far away. Don't even get close. When those temptations come, get out of there and we'll see how to do that. How do we stay away? How do we stay distant? Let me share some passages here. Again, back in our passage, verse 11. I think, first of all, we need to understand our identity. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war with the soul. The first way that we stay away from these things is we recognize it does not fit who we are in Christ. And everything going on around us is alien to us in Christ. The way the world functions, the way we were functioning before we came to Christ. He says, as aliens and strangers, the term alien, paroikoi, speaks of a non-citizen, a stranger, a foreigner. It's used by Stephen and Acts to speak of Israel when they were alien, would be aliens in a foreign land for 400 years in Egypt. It's used to speak of Moses after he fled to Egypt and became an alien and a fo- sojourner in the land of Midian. Land of Midian, Acts 7.29. Speaks of a foreigner and a, or a sojourner or a non-citizen. Well, what's the significance here? Peter is making the point that we are not citizens of this world anymore. This is not our country. This is not our home. You see, our time on earth is a temporal time, as we will see. Our time in the midst of those who do not know Christ, who live for their own desires, is a temporal time. We are strangers. We are foreigners in this area. We are foreigners in this area. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. And we need to see this or we can get sucked up in all the stuff of the world. Hey, I'm really thankful for uh, the stuff with the election where someone seems to be doing righteous things although they may not be a believer. It doesn't seem like it. I'm thankful for that. But we can get caught up in the stuff of the world. We can get caught up. This world is not our home. This is not our home. This is not our home. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, and he's weeping over this, For many walk, of whom I, verse 18, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Philippians 3, 18, then 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite or their desires, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Hey, they're enemies of the cross at this point. For our citizenship of believers is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We don't fit in. And we can't stand it when we yield and become like it. We can't wait till the Lord delivers us and redeems our bodies also. And we are glorified and there's no more sin in us. In us. Don't let your heart become endeared towards this world. Are there things obscuring your your heart based on the realities of this world? Take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. Those who were of faith had a different perspective. Those who truly knew the Lord Jesus Christ as they suffered made mistakes, but exhibited faith. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, 
obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's faith, by the way. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. Hmm. For he was looking for a... Or excuse me. And land of promise as a, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For, verse 10, he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose builder and architect is God. He knew it was the promised land, but he knew that wasn't the ultimate promised land. He was an alien in Canaan. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, also there was born of one man and him, and him as good as dead at that, time, at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And then look at this, verse 13. And these all died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They recognized that. He says here, for those who say such things, obviously confess that they're strangers and exiles, are looking for a better country. For those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of a country from which they, had, from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. If you're a true believer, you should desire our heavenly home, where there's no sin, no sorrow, no tears. You should desire that. Not this world. Don't make this your home. We are aliens in this world. We are aliens. And notice... uh, Back in our passage, there's another term used to describe. Back in second, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens, we just looked at that, a non-citizen. And then he says, and strangers. Strangers, to abstain from fleshly lust, to stay far away from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. This term translated strangers is the same term we saw back in chapter 1, verse 1, that is translated in the NSB, those who reside as aliens. And I wish the NSB would have kept it the same because it would, it would keep us from being confused because it's the same word translated those who reside as aliens back in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one, verse 1, to those who, here's our word, one word, who reside as aliens. And if you'll remember, this word strangers, uh, peripedidmos, speaks of one who who stays a while as an alien in a place. It speaks of a temporary resident. We are non-citizen, temporary residents on this earth. And when we recognize that, it will enable us to, to understand the way we should be thinking and the things we should be desiring, not those things of this world to which we do not fit. We are temporary sojourners. And the Lord God was not ashamed to call those his who were looking for a better country, Hebrews 11, a heavenly one. If your heart is still here loving this world, the things of the world, houses, stuff, consumed by the stuff of the world, if you're consumed by that, that's your love, that's your desire, maybe you don't know Christ. Or maybe your eyes have been obscured by your own fleshly lusts. 
we need to stay far away, far away. When we come to Christ, we immediately become aliens and sojourners in the world. And through the word of God, we realize this is not our home. That God is preparing a place for us in heaven. We are temporary residents. And we are commanded, as we see in Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on the things above, not the things of earth. And in our passage, we are to stay away as aliens and strangers. Stay away from fleshly lusts. Let me ask you this. What's your view of this world? Are your roots deep? Is your heart yoked to the things that are passing? It doesn't mean we don't have a house if the Lord provides. It doesn't mean we don't have a car if the Lord is provided. Is your heart yoked in these things? Are you relying on God or trusting in those things? Are you focused on those things or focused on God? Who gives and, as Job said, takes away. Some of you may not be saved as evidenced by your focus on this world alone. Everything centers around this world. Usually it centers around money and security, by the way. Usually that's it. True believers have had their eyes open to the corruption and sinfulness of this passing world and are looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Have you confessed in your heart that you are a stranger and exile on the earth? We need to see ourselves that way or we might be tempted to yield to those fleshly desires. We are not only foreign to this world of sin, the fleshly lusts are foreign to us also. Stay away from them. It's foreign to our new nature. Stay away. It's foreign. It's foreign. So with that in mind, how do we get away from them specifically? How do we do that? I think we're going to see it's as we... Fear the Lord God, put his word in our hearts, allow him to direct us by his spirit. He convicts us and directs us and protects us from these things. Let me share a couple passages that are helpful in motivating us to rely on the Lord and trust in him so that we would not yield to these fleshly desires. This passage alone should be a conviction. We're tempted in something. We go, no, stay far away and ask the Lord to help, right? But let me share some passages. Look at Proverbs chapter 16 Verse 6. Proverbs 16, verse 6. We're going to look at three passages in Proverbs to start. Proverbs 16, 6. These are short, pithy statements of truth. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. That's through, through what God did through Jesus Christ. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Fear the Lord. Go to Proverbs 23, verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Don't envy sinners. Don't envy those who don't know Christ. Yes, everything may be going good for them on the outside. Don't envy them. But instead, live in the fear of the Lord always. Live in that respect and honor and fear of the lord we saw back in first peter that if we have you know come to christ if we regard the father as one who judges impartially each man's work an impartial god we should conduct our lives in fear because of the price that was paid for us reverencing fearing god turning from sin to him go back now to proverbs 3 
verse 5. A lot of, we know that, a lot of you know this by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't trust in the security of things of the world. Don't do that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Recognize, acknowledge. Put, place the Lord in everything you do. And He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That means you think you're pretty smart. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Turn away. Stay far away. Turn away. And it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Wow. This is good counsel from God to us. We're to fear the Lord, but we also to fear Him in the context of trust in everything we do. John chapter 15, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You can't turn away or stay away from fleshly lust apart from fearing God. You're aware of Him. You don't want to displease Him. You don't want to sin against Him. And then turning from those things and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We have this tremendous verse which, which totally convicts and, and contradicts the mindset of so many people. So many people that would say, you don't know my temptation. You don't know what I'm going through. You've never had it like me. You couldn't understand. That's just not true. Although we have different types of temptations and trials and difficulties that we may not have experienced, here we see the temptation is the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. It's common to man. Don't ever believe that you think your temptation, whether it's because of a physical thing or whatever it might be, is different than anyone else's. That's a lie. That's a lie. And if you do that, you're going to believe falsehood and you're going to be trapped and bound. No temptation is overcoming you except that which is common to man. And guess what? Here's the important part. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may endure it. You may endure it. God is the one who delivers us from temptation. He provides the way, and he does it through the word, by the Spirit, as we trust Jesus Christ. He uses his word to convict us. Don't do that. Turn. Trust me. Nick read some of these passages earlier. Psalm 119. How could a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word. Psalm 119.11. Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now it's thy word, not the word. It's thy word. It's God's word to us. I've treasured in my heart that I wouldn't sin against thee. I'm fearing God, fearing God. And certainly we fail. And when we fail, confess your sin quickly. Be forgiven. You'd be set free again. Confess your sin. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. I want to illustrate this in terms of trusting the Lord, his word, and him directing us away from sin and keeping us away from those fleshly desires. Proverbs chapter 2. It's a great passage, by the way, in, the, in foundational in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you will receive my sayings. Hey, 
you, you receive the word of God that's coming through me, by the way. It was inspired by the Spirit. And treasure my commandments within you. You receive it in your heart. Make your ears attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. Get your heart right. If your heart isn't right, you can read the Bible all day long. You can come to church all day long. Humble your heart. Receive the word in humility. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, search for her as hidden treasures. That's value. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. He preserves the way of his God. God protects you. He directs you. He keeps us far from those things as we yearn to have his word working in our hearts that he would direct us. For wisdom will enter your heart. Or excuse me. Then you will discern righteous and justice and equity and every good course. Then you'll discern the right course. For wisdom will enter in your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. And then he goes to talk about being delivered from the way of the evil man and the, and, the, and the adulterous woman. Those fleshly lusts. Those things that we desire. Get the word of God in your heart from a right heart. And allow it to renew your mind. We know in Romans, we're not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2. Now, in a practical sense, the Apostle Paul shares this, this difference of what happens, the way we shouldn't be, the way we used to be, we shouldn't be that way, versus the way we should be. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. These are practical passages to help us learn, as we trust the Lord, how to stay away from fleshly lusts. And as the word works in our hearts, we're convicted. No, no, that's not right. Lord, I'm sorry. Help me. Help me. We trust the Lord. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles. That's a slang term for non-believers. Also walk. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity, with greediness. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him that just as truth is in Jesus, if you've really been saved, by the way. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, that's your former desires. Fleshly lusts, by the way. Your former manner of life that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance of the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness, in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We renew our hearts and minds. We start to think, oh, what do I got? I got to do this. I got to do that. Well, no, wait a second. Lord, help me. Trust you. Lead me in what I need to do. You, you change, you, 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 you renew your heart and mind with his word. As obedient children, we see back in 1 Peter. Look at actually 1 Peter 1.14. Back in 1 Peter. Remember this command? As children characterized by obedience. If you remember when we went through this. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Hey, you didn't understand it, you just lived that way. Don't be conformed that way. But like the Holy One who called you, be 
holy yourselves in all your, we'll see this word later on, behavior. Brothers and sisters, trusting and fearing the Lord, allowing His Spirit to work in our hearts, yielding to Christ, believing in Him, is nothing other than walking by the Spirit. And if you walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Sounds familiar. Fleshly desires. If we allow His Spirit to work His Word in our hearts, to renew our minds as we trust Him, and we fear Him, and we walk with Him, we are delivered from those fleshly desires. We are to stay far away. We're not to be allowing ourselves to get near those fleshly desires. Is there any area that you have yielded? Any area you are not only near, you are in? Confess. Be set free. Whatever it is, if it's as simple as as just simply desiring security apart from trusting in Christ. That's simple. Whatever it might be, stay far away. Stay far away. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Well, notice there are some consequences for not staying away for the believer. Back to 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, And he says, which wage war against the soul. Did you catch that? For the true believer who is beloved, when we yield to our fleshly desires, then we have a war that begins. This term means war, strateo. It means to make war. And when you think of war, what do you think of? You think of two sides that are out to utterly destroy one another either by causing them to totally submit or by destroying them. The soul speaks of the inner man. It is apart from the body. It is that immaterial reality. It is who we are. It is what God has redeemed and saved. He has saved our souls. Our bodies of death have not been redeemed yet. They will be, but they haven't been yet. Peter is fond of this word soul. He says in chapter 1 that we purified our souls for a sincere love of the brethren, 122. Chapter 225, Jesus Christ is the guardian and shepherd of our souls. Chapter 4, verse 19, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And we see here we are to yield, not yield ourselves over to those fleshly desires, to stay away, or a battle with the soul ensues. If you're a true believer, you understand this. You understand the internal struggle that happens when we yield to our fleshly desires. You understand that. Paul shares it in Galatians. He says that the spirit and the flesh are against opposed to one another. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, that, so that you may not do the things that you please. When we yield to our fleshly desires, we are immediately, or we immediately have a war begin inside of us. And there is no peace. And that war often is accompanied by other sins, like worry, anxiety, and the depression that comes from that. You know, I find so often we can make the mistake uh, in the context of a trial or whatever it might be, 
thinking that, that it's a trial when really it's the battle. It's the war with our soul. It's the war with our soul. We have yielded to our desires and there's a battle going on. The battle is raging in our hearts. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage battle or war against your soul. Stay far away. You can have that battle end right now if you're willing to confess. Ask God to reveal those areas that you have followed your own desires. Confess them. Be set free. The battle will end. You say, I've been confessing my anxiety and worry all the time. It's not going away. Well, maybe the battle is going on because of your fleshly desires in some other area. Now, if you're a non-believer, there's no battle with your soul. When you're able to do your own thing, no battle, no internal conflict. Now, there may be conflict when people thwart your desires or, or someone gets hurt or something like that. You lose something, yeah, there may be that, but there's no battle. There is no battle in your heart when you desire things that are con- contra- contradictory to, to God's will. And it's only through Jesus you can find rest for your soul. Now concerning this battle, we have a biblical example. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. There was a believer named Lot. What did he follow? His own desires, didn't he? If you look at Lot's life, it wasn't very nice. It wasn't very fun. And he was tormented in his soul because of the choices that he had made. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. For by what he saw... And heard this righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. It's interesting. He was tormented, but he still lived there. And he shouldn't have been there. Brother and sister, is there any area in your life that your lusts and desires are waging war with your soul? Any area. Confess it. Stay far away. Stay far away from fleshly lusts. So then how can we maintain a true redemptive witness in the midst of a hostile, unbelieving world? First of all, we need to stay away from fleshly lusts. Secondly, and lastly, we'll see that we should realize that God uses our good behavior in Christ as a platform to prepare the way for salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's read our passage through verse 11, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And here we go. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Now I need to make a point that verses 11 and 12 are not separate commands. And sometimes it seems that way because some of the translations like the NASB do that. You have, I urge you to stay away from fleshly lusts. Then you have in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent, almost like it's a separate command. But the verb in verse 12 is actually a participle. You could say it this way, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, keeping your behavior excellent. It's connected together. You can't keep your behavior excellent among non-believers if you're not staying away from fleshly desires. The two hinge together. So as we stay away from fleshly lusts, we are to be keeping our behavior or having or holding our behavior as excellent. 
The term Gentiles here in verse 11 speaks of the nations, ethnos, but it really came to be a slang term for non-believers. As we stay away from our fleshly lust, we are to be keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. This term behavior, we've seen this before, anastrepho. It speaks of our conduct of life. It's translated behavior in chapter 1, verse 15. Also in chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 16. It's translated way of life in chapter 1, verse 18. And it's translated behavior here in our passage. And we are to be continually, habitually keeping or holding or having our behavior. And notice he has this word, excellent. Excellent. This is an interesting word that's translated excellent here. The word is kalos. And in the Greek language, there are two words that are generally translated good almost all the time. One is agathon, which speaks of that which is morally or intrinsically good. It's just good, morally speaking. And then there is this word, kalos, which speaks of that which is good, but it carries the idea of an outward manifestation of that which is beautiful. It is good, but it is manifest outwardly. Kalos is translated good 79 times out of the 95 times, but it's also translated commendable, fair, fine, high, honest, honorable, sound, treasure, what is right, beautiful, and here, excellent. Excellent. One pastor writes, Kalos is good with an emphasis which that, on that which is beautiful, handsome, excellent, commendable, or admirable. So in our passage, he's saying our behavior should continue to be good in a way that is manifest, in a way that is manifest. And it is manifest among the non-believers. As we stay away from fleshly lust, we are to continually, habitually have behavior that is good among non-believers. And this can only happen when we trust and rely on Christ. And I think we can all recognize, unfortunately, that at times our behavior before non-believers is not good. It's not good. When we follow our own desires, we get angry at non-believers for their sinfulness. We get frustrated at their wickedness. We can be tempted to treat them wrongly with those who disagree with Christ. I've fallen into that. Seen non-believers the wrong way. Not been, had my behavior good. It's wrong. It's wrong. Our behavior is to be good. It's to be externally beautiful around non-believers. It's to be excellent. And as we stay away from our fleshly lusts, we are to keep our behavior this way around those who do not know Christ. Let me ask you, how do you, believe, how do you behave excuse me, around non-believing family? How do you behave around non-believing strangers, non-believing co-workers, Non-believers at school, non-believers at the store, non-believers in the road around you. We're to be keeping our behavior excellent, excellent. And when we fail, and I failed, I've got to confess it. My attitude towards them was wrong. It was wrong. Lord, I confess that. I'm sorry. And this only happens when we're staying away from our own desires, trusting Christ by his word, allowing his spirit to direct our hearts, then we will keep our behavior excellent. And now, notice, the stakes are very high. They're very high. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And here we go. So that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep it excellent. Keep it outwardly good. Manifest Christ. They don't deserve to be treated graciously. Treat them graciously. It's called grace. Our speech should be seasoned with salt as it were grace. We shouldn't be evil around them. We should be treating them in a way that is outwardly manifest as good from an inward change. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles. And here we go. So that, so that, and you could phrase it this way, so that they would glorify God on the day of visitation. That's really the phrase. So that they would glorify God in the day of visitation. That's a pretty important thing. It's a pretty important thing. Here we have an amazing statement that reveals that our good deeds that are visible because of Christ working in us among non-believers are observed and observable. Observable. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may account of your good deeds as they observe them. We'll see next time that some illustrations of how we do this. Submitting to authority, chapter 2. Submitting to bad bosses, chapter 2. Not returning evil for evil in return. Some examples of how we do that around non-believers. Ready to give an account for the hope that we have. Sanctifying Christ as Lord of our hearts. We have an example with wives. In chapter 3, they are to be submissive to their husbands. Even to those who are non-believers, disobedient to the word. 1 Peter 3, 2. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. It's good behavior that is observable. It's observable. Non-believers are going to observe our behavior, by the way, and we are to let our light shine. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Boy, it's really easy, even in the sphere of politics, to have attitudes towards non-believers. And it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong when we do it. It's wrong. And we can treat people wrongly with those attitudes rather than reflecting his goodness towards those who don't deserve it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. And it's speaking of taste here, not preservative. But if the salt has become tasteless... How will it remains become made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore. It's set to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Hey, you blew your testimony, right? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, these excellent deeds from Christ in us and glorify your Father who is in heaven as they observe it. Now at this point, as we finish, we have two contrasting realities. We have the good deeds being observed and we have the evildoers slandering because of those good deeds. Look here. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... They're actually slandering because of your good deeds. The term slander means to speak evil of, and we have examples of that in chapter 3, verse 16. Keep a good conscience, so in the thing in which you are slandered. Chapter 4, they malign you because you don't run with them anymore. 
Keep a good conscience. Don't get rattled by it. Trust the Lord because he's going to work through it. They slander you as evildoers that they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. The reality is that as you reflect the image of Christ in the world and they slander you for it, God is using that very evil to work in their hearts from the very good that he brought forth in you. That they might do one thing here. End of verse 12. Glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean? Many commentators say it's the terms it's the day of the Lord when God judges. That's possible. Uh, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of the Father. Philippians 2. But is that what this is speaking of here? I don't, I don't think so. And there's a few reasons why, and I'll briefly share it. One is there's no definite article in the Greek. It's, there's no the day of visitation. If there was a the day of visitation, I'd say, hey, maybe that's the day. Here it's in a day of visitation. That they may glorify God in a day of visitation. What does this visitation mean? The word comes from the Greek word episkopos, which speaks of overseeing or visiting. It's the same word for overseer in Scripture. And there are some passages that relate the reality that Christ comes through salvation to visit us. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 41. The Lord Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Everybody's all happy and yelling and everything. He's looking at it, and he's saying, you missed it. You missed it, and he's weeping. It's not the triumphal entry, it's the, 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 the tearful entry. They're rejoicing, but they're not saved. And they're going to say crucify within a week. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children with, with you, within you, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God had visited them in the context of the gospel. Jesus Christ, they didn't recognize it. One other passage, Luke chapter 1, go back a little bit. Speaking of John the Baptist who would prepare the way, his father prophesies. Luke one seventy six. And you, child, shall be called a prophet of the Most High, for you shall go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sin. This is about salvation. And he says here, because of the tender mercy of our God, with the sunrise from on high, which he shall, here's our word, visit us. You see, the Lord God visits every one of us in the context of convicting us with the gospel that we might be saved. And I believe in this passage that on that day of visitation when these non-believers, the ones that do get saved, when they recognize what God was doing, they will glorify God for the things that they once mocked, the things they once maligned you for. God takes that evil and he turns it to good. Turns it to good. They slander you, but God uses those good deeds as a foundation for the gospel.
Brother and sister, our behavior in the world is very important. The stakes are very high. We don't just go out and share the gospel all over the place with tracts and stuff. You know, I'm not saying that's wrong, but if we're just throwing the gospel everywhere and our lives are not reflecting Christ. Later on in 1 Peter, he says to be ready to give an account for those who ask why you have hope. They've seen your good deeds as they slandered you, and they're asking you why you have hope. Foundation for sharing the gospel, letting his light of righteousness flow through us before the world. You are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine. How do we do that? Stay away from fleshly lusts. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I know we've all failed. We have acted in ways which were not good before the world. Lord, we confess that. Lord, we've yielded to fleshly desires, and we confess that. Lord God, may we obey your word as a body. May we stay far away. May we keep our behavior excellent among those who don't know you. May we be walking by faith, trusting you, allowing your word to work in our hearts in every circumstance so that you would be glorified. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, who are just living their lives. I just pray that you would convict them of sin and your love for them, sending your son to die for them. And lastly, Father, I just pray for anyone here who has the war going on right now, the battle against their soul. I pray they would humble themselves before you and ask you what desires they have yielded to. They would confess those and be set free and stay away. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray.